really need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. White, and we're talking criminal justice, public land, and more with Madai University criminal justice professor Orlando Dixon. Orlando, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a little over two years since the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor kicked off summer-long protests, civic actions, and educational seminars relating to civil rights across the country and especially here in Buffalo. As a criminal justice professor, have we moved beyond protests here? Are we still angry? Uh, if there's been a shift away from civic actions, where are we right now? Um, well, to answer your question directly, yes, we are still angry. Um, I think we have shifted a little bit away from protest. I think the pandemic, of course, had a little bit to do with that. Um, but also we're looking at um, kind of a a pause in 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 I guess the actions against each other because we're looking at you know war in Ukraine and all these other things that are happening in the world and I think we're 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 kind of getting away from the original focus of it. Um, a lot of the the way that was able to happen was because people were off because of the pandemic, right? People didn't mm -hmm. have to be at work, so that people had more time to be outside. But it was also recent, right? George Floyd had been murdered recently and you know people generally right after an event happens they're more forceful they're, they they take more um they take more emphasis in being a part of the movement and so the further you move away from that of course you're always going to see less and less protest and um activism but i also think we've got a lot of measures that the city has done to try to try to move the needle a little bit um but that's always the problem the, the needle only moves a little bit Mm -hmm. The needle never moves enough. What are some examples of, of the city moving the needle, even if it's just a little bit? Um, so um, the, 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 the Carol, uh, I don't want to say her name right. Carol Horn? Carol Horn. Um, yeah, we had her on uh, right. a week ago. Right. The Carol Horn measure is huge, making sure that um, officers have a duty to protect um, people from other officers if, in the case that they, they do something untoward. I think that's that was a huge move. Um, the um, ideas moving towards the alarms for you know the Breonna Taylor situation where no knock warrants are generally either used less, there's more justification for them, or there's an alarm that lets people know that an, a no knock warrant is about to be served. Things like that I think um, are showing that the city they know that there's an issue, um, and I think what what happens though is. We see those those things, and we and then the city gets to say, "Yeah, we're we're doing we're doing stuff to change, you know, um, change the the idea of policing around here." But then, you see things like the police advisory board 
being dismantled and you're like, oh, but see, this is this is the issue. Here. And I want to I want to circle back to that. But if we're if we're not if we're not if we're no longer protesting, as Jay-Z said, we're you know, we're we're past kneeling or whatever. If we're not protesting, we're not doing these civic actions. Where how do we keep pushing that needle further if we're not going to be doing those things? Um well, we should be doing those those things. I think I think um, even though we've we've slowed it down, I think we should we should reengage. Um, it's it's not you know just a George Floyd issue, right? People are being killed every day. Um, unarmed black men, um, unarmed people in general are being killed every day, um, or at least every week. You know, and it's it's a shame. Nobody should have to go through that. And I think the way we get back into it, we re-engage the process. We meet with our local officials because most politics are local, right? We meet with our local officials. We call and let them know this is still an issue for us. We haven't stopped caring. And we also vote. We participate in civic engagement. We also volunteer, get involved with local groups. There's local groups in every city, especially here in Buffalo, um, where you can get involved with people who are working on this every day because the work hasn't stopped. It just went behind the scenes, right? There's people who are in nonprofits that are working on this stuff every day. Um, Voice Buffalo, you got um, Citizens Action, uh, Partnership for the Public Good. There's so many people that are always working on this. And um, even though it's not getting as much public attention, um, there's always opportunities to get involved. And back to uh, police officers. Do you believe police officers and citizens, given what has happened with with George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, uh, you know, recently uh, here with Willie Henley and others. Are we a bit more cognizant citizens and law enforcement uh, of each other? Uh, is there a sense on both ends to that we need to de-escalate certain situations given what we've seen? I would say yes. I, I genuinely believe that the police want to do their job correctly. I think there there's a history of incorrect training within the police, as in, you know, there's these, you know, um, programs throughout the United States that teach officers to kind of, you know, in a, in a matter of words, shoot first and ask questions later. Um, and it's and there's a training issue overall with police. But I also think there's a history issue, right? There's There's the history of police being able to kind of get the benefit of the doubt in every situation. And so when you have that history and you have that training, you're going to have a situation where the police are kind of getting away with things they shouldn't get away with. And then you have policies that the public is not aware of where the pol- the, pu- the public is like, hey, we want to see what how you, you know, punish these people. And then you have the police pushing back saying that's personal information and things like that. So we also need transparency in that way. So when police are wanting to do their job right but they just don't have the tools it rely we have to rely on the government to give them those tools and say hey do your job this way share this information with the public so we can all be on the same page because as long as we're on two different pages you're always going to have the public saying police you're not doing your job right and the police pushing back saying you don't understand Mm -hmm. and then i guess the elephant in the room is what what problems still exist between law enforcement and citizens okay uh that one's uh there's a lot (laughs) how much time you got right um i think one of the key issues is there's a lack of understanding between police and the communities that they serve um police 
are are to serve a purpose, right? They they want to catch criminals. They want to protect people, right? Um, but in a traffic stop, who are you protecting if there's a person without a weapon and you're just hammering them with questions that ha- are irrelevant to the reason you stopped them? Who are you protecting if you, you, you're making pretextual stops based on a person's race or gender or whatever it is? Um, it, we, we, have to, we have to give police the benefit of the doubt when they're arresting people who are doing the bad things, right? But we also have to check, you know, there, there's this saying, you know, um, you know uh, trust in God, check everyone else, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's happening right now. Police aren't checked. Is there a problem with officers patrolling neighborhoods that they don't live in, that they're not of. Um, I've heard a lot about that. And like, if you don't know the neighborhood, how effectively can you police the neighborhood, protect the neighborhood? Right. I think there was um, there was a law before in Buffalo where you had to be a a resident. Um, A a few people were grandfathered into that, of course. But so that, but I think that sunset in 2020. If I'm not, if I'm not, I'm not certain if they they reengaged it. But you de- you definitely need people from the communities because if you know that this certain person has, uh, for instance, a men- a mental um, disability, um, you might say, okay, well, I know this person because I'm in this community and I know that this person doesn't mean any harm. So maybe there's a way to divert this away from a criminal issue. Um, but also just knowing people, you're less likely to arrest somebody that you know for something that's irrelevant or something that that's not a crime. Um, you're more or less, you're less likely to, to, um, assume worst intentions Mm -hmm. when you know the people. So you do need officers in the neighborhood. You need people who care about the citizens in that area and that they just want to serve those people rather than feel like they're a security force keeping those people down or keeping those people in check. And I want to I wanted to circle back to the police advisory board in March. The Common Council dismantled the police advisory board. You were once a part of the police advisory board. Why? Why the hell would the Common Council decide to do that? Uh, it was a lot of uh, maneuvering, I guess, um, from both the Common Council, um, the police, and internal members of the board. So in, previously, in previous iterations of the board, the board was doing exactly what it was built to do. We meet with the community. We research the ideas that the community has. Um, we maybe throw in some of our own that are related to those ideas the community had. And then we present that information to the Common Council. The Common Council makes a decision on whether they want to do anything about it. Um, and we often meet with the police and also bring those ideas to the police. That was the way we were supposed to work, mm-hmm. right? However, when you get to a situation where members on the board are kind of doing whatever they want to do and they're not following that process and they're not understanding that we are here to serve, um, that's when you get into some issues, right? So the, the original issue, we, we had new members on the board for the first time in a long time. And when we had those new members on the board, some of the new members didn't understand the process for how we conducted business. They were doing things on their own. They were, you know, writing papers to people and things on behalf of the board that we didn't vote on. There were things like that that were happening internally. We weren't working together as a group, basically. Right. But before that, before that new onset group, we were working together. Mm-hmm. Great, actually. We had we talked to the police or we talked to the police and the common council about white supremacy. We had talked to them about body cameras, all types of things. We even helped 
you know, the police come up with their their um, their body camera policy. So we it was working. Um, but um, the true matter of it is we had people who were on the board that were um, in a state of white privilege where they didn't understand that even though they're trying to help, they're actually hurting. And we were trying to put those people in a mindset where they could understand, yes, what you what you have a, a just overall goal, but the way you're going about it is going to cause more problems than it does issues. We also had an insurgent member who was reporting everything that we said um, to the common council and to police. It was it was kind of an awkward thing where we're just coming up with ideas, things that we might not even do, but just trying to spitball. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have somebody that's taken every idea and and presenting it to to the common council and you know um, the police as if these are things we're actually going to do. When really we're just trying to figure out um, the the next way to forward. And you know then there's internal you know drama. People are saying things. Um, that they shouldn't say to other members, and yeah, it it, it became it became a, a a way of allowing the common council to come in and say, oh, look, you guys don't work, so we can dismantle mm-hmm. you. Well, why would the common council want to dismantle an independent advisory board? Why wouldn't you? That's a good question. Why why wouldn't you say, hey, you have some issues, fix those issues, and then once you fix those issues, we can reengage. That wasn't that wasn't the step. They didn't even meet with the com- with with the police advisory board to say, "Hey, why don't we get, all get in the room and hash this out?" It was just immediately, "Let's get rid of it." And then you can think of the motivations for why you would want to get rid of an independent police advisory board and not replace it with the same type of independent police advisory board. Because I don't think any of the members of the police advisory board would have objected as long as the entity stayed independent. Mm-hmm. But that's not what the common council was was saying they wanted to make it to where they appointed members it's not independent if you appoint members true because you can appoint your you can appoint your buddies yes if the police advisory board were to come back what what would what were what would be some ideas you would have for them to to take a look at Um, community-wide so the first part is if if a police advisory board comes back, it has to be independent. Um, if it's not independent, then it doesn't matter what the issues are because they're not they're only going to do what the common council tells them to do. Um, but there are some issues that still need to be addressed. We still have an issue with um, police doing traffic stops where um, the the you know reasonable suspicion or um, probable cause may not actually be there. We still have an issue with um, members of society being put in jail that are suffering from mental health issues um, that maybe shouldn't be put in jail. Um, We still have an issue with timing. um, when um, Police response in certain areas is not the same in other areas. So there's a lot of issues that um, the police advisory board can look at. And it's kind of hard to even say, well, what are the current issues? Because that's kind of what the police advisory board did. We went to the community. We said, what are your issues, right? Mm-hmm. So right now I'm speaking from my perspective of just what I've seen. And yep. that's not enough. And that's kind of what I was trying to tell that board member at that time. My perspective is not enough. Your perspective is not enough. We need the community's perspective. And then we can add ours into that. And um, that's what we're missing. We're missing that connection from the community directly to the board or directly to the common council where they have to listen Mm -hmm. because the community can go into that 
into that, those meetings. And they can talk and they can say this is an issue, but that doesn't have the same weight as a police advisory board going into that meeting and saying that these are the issues. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. We're talking criminal justice, public land, and more with Madai University criminal justice professor Orlando Dixon. Public land for public use. It sounds like a simple concept, but is that happening here in the city of Buffalo? Um, to an extent, I think it's 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 more of a, a half-measure approach, and this is common what, what you see in most political areas. They give you a little bit, and then they say, well, look, we're doing something, but the something is never enough. Um, what we really need to see is we need to see, you know, tracts of land that are given to um, back to the, the residents and so they can, you know, make it green spaces. They can farm on that. They can, you know, plant, you know, um, flowers, whatever, right? We need more green spaces in the city of Buffalo, right? Um, but we also need um, tracts of land that are just left alone, that we, we're not giving to developers and saying, hey, build something on this, right? Um, sometimes you just need green space that's not used for anything, um, you know, for what is it called, uh, carbon... Uh, reduction mm-hmm. um, and and I think a lot of a lot of what happens with with public land is is we pe- people look at public land and they see money um, but they don't see health they don't see you know uh, energy conservation they don't see you're reducing um, smog they don't see like those things most of the time people look at land and say oh look a free space where we can build something and make money but we need to change our mindset to um, one where we look at these spaces and say, well, can we do something to help the city in another way? What would you do with the Kensington Expressway? Uh, there's been talk, there's plans to to turn it into something, uh, something that, that it's currently not, um, uh, connecting these neighborhoods that have been uh, bisected for years and years and years. Um, say you had the influence what would you do i would get rid of it honestly i think that's the only way that you can can completely negate the history of dissecting you know black communities um you got to completely get rid of the highway um now i say that from a perspective of like the reality of making that happen is is of course extremely difficult and then you're going to have people complain about traffic etc right um so I guess the the second state is reconnecting those communities. Um, You know, they have the over the expressway, um, you know, uh, walkers where you can walk, you know, across, Mm -hmm. right? We need more of those. Um, We need more ways to connect these two areas that have been split. Um, Not only that, you need to reinvest in those areas that you split. You don't necessarily have to change the the road or um, change the highway. You can just invest in those communities and pay back what you destroyed. And it's and it's you know also an apology would be nice. <laughs> um, hey, we acknowledge that we you know separated these communities and we destroyed a hundred years worth of progress. Maybe we should apologize for that. Maybe we should put it on the table and just say, you know, here's some truth and reconciliation about the about the issue. Now we, uh, being WBFO, we recently obtained documents related to. Buffalo and Erie County Land Trust, grabbing up property from Jefferson Avenue owners and others uh, with a super bid prior to the October 6th auction, uh, essentially cutting a line to get uh, to bid. 
Um, and we know land trust works to keep property out of the hands of developers. Uh, but what is your what's your take on this news? Big deal, little deal, no deal? Uh, it's a big deal. Um, assuming that is true, of course, I don't know any other details. I just, I think it's believable though. And the, the problem is that it's believable, right? Like it, there's, it's not a stretch of the imagination to think that something like this is happening in Buffalo. Um, it's the way that Buffalo treats developers. We generally, as a city, give developers all the benefit of the doubt. Then we give them the benefit of the benefit, right? Um, and so it's always a constant well, what are what do the developers want? And then we'll check with everyone else kind of city. And I think that's the problem. We shouldn't be able to believe this. This should be something that as soon as somebody talks about it, we're like, no, 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 the city of Buffalo wouldn't do that. But at the city of Buffalo needs to ask themselves, why do people believe this? Why is this something mm-hmm. that can even be brought up? Well, because, you know, people tend to believe this type of thing about a city who's done it before. So are you saying developers have a little too much power in the city they, a little too much di- dictate things over here a lot of too much um there's the developers are in a situation in this city where if they talk to the right people and they promise the right things they can essentially get whatever they want and i and i and i don't and i don't think that's a stretch of the imagination for anybody who's who's uh, been in the game with with politics uh, in this city. And it doesn't have to be that way. Um, multiple nonprofits have suggested that all you have to do is just open the auctions up to locals first. Don't allow outside, you know, people who don't care about the city to come in, snap up land, and then hold it and become slumlords, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's it's a very simple thing, right? We can allow the auctions to go to locals first and then open it up to developers. We could give public land for public benefit, right? We could force um, developers when they be, create these huge monstrosities to, to do some integrated living, right? Some Mix in some, some affordable housing with that, the luxury of housing, right? It's, it's very simple, and, and that's, the, that's the thing. We have all the solutions. It's just a matter of political will. Is luxury housing sustainable in Absolutely the city? Not. <laughs> Absolutely not. It's, it's actually very odd to me that we have luxury housing at all. I mean, I understand that there's people who have more than others, of course, and they want to live at a higher standard than others, but they can go buy a house. Mm-hmm. We don't need that in the city. We don't need, we don't need a, 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 a sky-rise building overlooking the city when we have the entire east side struggling, right? It, it's, it's, it's very dystopian, or dystopian, I guess, to, to see like this luxury apartment building coming up over here and then the east side of Buffalo can't even get their sidewalks paved, right? Mm-hmm. They have open lots that um, where dilapidating houses. There's, there's just massive disinvestment in one part of the city. So how, how dare you build luxury apartments when people on one part of the in one part of the city are struggling like that yeah i mean there's there's i can drive down elmwood and and from from elmwood and forest to like elmwood and uh west utica there's there's at least two new buildings with luxury luxury housing and it's just i don't know it's it's seems strange especially right. when you drive especially as you said driving around the east side you see vacant lots and everything and, and houses being torn down uh it's just it's a tale of two cities it really is right um and again you're listening to buffalo what's next i'm thomas o'neill white 
I'm talking criminal justice. I'm talking public land with Madai University criminal justice professor Orlando Dixon. Orlando, I would be I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about working with my brother, the My Brother's Keepers group through Say Yes Buffalo. What does it mean to you to to help mold young black and brown men? Oh, it means everything. Um, when I was a kid, I didn't have um, the type of mentorship that um, that would have allowed me to reach success earlier, um, or even it could have kept me out of um, certain things that I got into that I shouldn't have been into, right? Um, and all it takes sometimes is a voice, um, a voice that looks like you, um, right? Um, somebody who can come in the room and say, actually, there's a better way, um, and I can show you because I've done it. And I think that, you know, MBK does that. Say Yes is an excellent program. Everything that I've ever done with them has been amazing. Um, you know, Daniel and Tommy, they, those guys are they're pillars of the community. Absolutely. Um, Daniel and Tommy, shout out to you guys. <laughs> please, please come on the show. <laughs> they should. They should. Um, and um, also they have a, I think they have a podcast um, as well, which um where they where they um they let the young men come on and talk about the issues in the in the Amer in the uh in the area and in their own personal lives. So, yeah, check them out as well. Um but yeah, they're 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 amazing. Um I haven't been as involved in the last 3 months. I was finishing up my master's program, so mm -hmm. um I had to pull back a little bit, but um I'm looking forward to reengaging. Yeah. Now, coming up next, we're going to Dave Debo will be talking uh about uh this weekend's dedication ceremonies for the African-American Veterans Monument uh, with committee chairman Warren Galloway. You also served in the military. Yes, I did. Can you talk a little bit about your experience? Uh, yeah, so uh, I was in the U.S. Army for nine years active, um, and nine years, one day, and 22 hours to be exact. Um, don't ask me why I was counting. But um, yeah, I was in, I, I went to um, Iraq um, and I went to Afghanistan. I was in Iraq for 15 months, and I was in Afghanistan for 12 months. Um, yeah, it was a very unique experience. I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad I served. I think, um, you know, I was trying to, you know, I was on, I was, I was homeless when I was a kid. I was, I grew up poor. I was on public benefits, and I kind of felt like I owed the the government back a little bit. So that was one of my main reasons for doing it. But also, my cousin had recently passed away, and he had used to tell me about being in Vietnam and. And it kind of made me feel like if I didn't serve, um, that I would regret it one day. And I didn't want that regret. Um, but, yeah, I enjoyed my time in. They have their own issues. Um, I dealt with issues of racism. I dealt with some issues of, um, you know, mis I guess misaligned goals when it came to response to to uh, sexual assault. There were a lot of people in high places that, that didn't get the same treatment um, when it came to sexual assault. Mm -hmm. um, and that was part of the reason I started to move towards getting out. I also, you know, had a few injuries and stuff. So, um, that was also a reason for me to start, um, exiting, but yeah, I think there's some issues they still have to resolve within the military, but overall it was a positive experience. Um, lessons, I, lessons yeah. learned from your yeah. experience. Can you get Absolutely. into the, those? Um, yes. Um, I, I, I think the, the most common lesson that everybody learns is discipline. Um, when you sit back and you think about, you know, am I doing the things necessary to succeed? Um, and it, a lot of it just requires creating a habit within yourself, um, structured life every day. I'm going to get up at this time and do this thing, regardless of how I feel, regardless of the situation, that discipline 
the military really beats that into you, um, for lack of a better term. <laughs> um, but just outside of that, the camaraderie, you, you start to learn the value of people. Um, you know, the, the people who are around you, the people that you're serving, especially when you're in a third world country, it also puts things into perspective. Like I'm in a country where somebody lives in a house that's made of mud and I had the audacity to complain about being homeless as a kid, right? When I have a shelter that I can go to that's, you know, a brick and mortar building and somebody else is literally living in a hut made of mud. And that's not to say that, that these people don't prosper. They are incredible people. The things that I've seen them accomplish with so little are incredible. So um, it, it just really puts things into perspective for you. When I got back from Iraq, I literally bent down and kissed the grass because it had been so long since I had seen that much green, right? Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, it really puts things in perspective. Yeah. You are listening to Buffalo What's Next. I'm Thomas O'Neill White here with Madai University criminal justice professor Orlando Dixon. Talk to me about working at Madai um, as a criminal justice professor. What's that like? I absolutely love it. I, I honestly feel like it's the calling that I missed, right? I, I felt like this is something I should have always been doing. I don't get up and I don't get up in the morning and, and hate going to work. It's, it's, it's a love thing. I, I genuinely love that feeling of teaching somebody something, imparting wisdom or whatever it is, right? When I, when, I, when I tell somebody a new piece of information and that light bulb goes off in their head and they're like, oh, I just learned something, that does something to me internally. That's something that there's no feeling like that. This person now knows something they didn't, and I'm the one that helped them get that, to that place, and it, it's a great feeling. And it's got to be... It's, it's got to be nice because this is an interesting time with this kind of shift in how we view the criminal justice system and the, the, the progressive ideas that are starting to, again, move the needle towards uh, a more equitable criminal justice system. Right, right. Um, so in my classes, I don't... I don't um I don't pull any punches. I tell it exactly how it is. Um, I talk about my personal experiences. I talk about um, the way the system is kind of built to um, put certain people in jail and not others, how it's built to protect some some people and not others. Um, and we've seen this over and over again. I don't even have to be specific for people to know what I'm talking about. Um, and, I, and, I, and I think teaching from the book is one way that people can do it, but I also think you can bring some real realism to it. You can really change the way people see things, change perspectives, um, give them some information they may not be privy to, and that's kind of what I try to do in my classes. How, how do you bring realism to it? Um, so there's this, there's this idea of law in the books versus law in action, right? Yeah. So if a person steals a piece of bread, right, um, and they need to eat, right, and they were stealing a piece of bread to eat, most most people would be okay if the if the police officer let that person go, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the law in the books is that stealing bread is wrong, right? Um, it's a it's illegal. So it's what it's the discretion part of it, right? We can say that this is the law, but how willing are the officers to actually participate in enforcing that law, right? And then it's also it can work in the reverse, right? Where something is a small issue but maybe the police pay too much attention to it. So it makes it seem like a larger issue. So the issue of violent crime, for instance, versus white-collar crime. If somebody steals $500 by, you know, punching somebody in the face and stealing $500, is that worse than um, somebody embezzling a million dollars because a punch was involved? And so that's, what, that's where it's, you know, what, what are we focusing on more? 
um, what's more important to the people. You know, of course, nobody wants to get punched in the face, but, you know, there's there might be some people who might say, no, that million dollars is probably a little bit more important. Um, but how much do how much white collar crime do we see being investigated by the police? Yeah. So it's, it's more so bringing like the reality of it um, just because the law is on the books doesn't mean it's enough. And sometimes it can be on the books and it's not enough. Interesting. Very interesting. Following the top shooting on May 14th, uh, President Biden came in, gave a speech. Did you listen to that speech? I did not. You did not? (laughs) (laughs) What are your what are your what are your feelings on, I guess, one, white supremacy and two, how does law enforcement combat white supremacy? How do we as citizens, residents of Western New York and Buffalo combat white supremacy? Um, Well, thanks for asking. So first, I want to say, you know, blessings to everyone who had um, a family member that was involved in that that horrific situation. Um, We're still healing as a community and we all um, you have all of our support. Um, I think the problem with white supremacy is we look at it as the 19. 20s version of it, right? We look at it as people in white hoods that are coming out and doing all these crazy things. But we saw in Charlottesville, none of those people were wearing hoods. Mm-hmm. Those people just had t- tiki torches yeah. that they bought from their local store, right? Tiki and, torches and khaki shorts. Right. Um, so we, we're, we're seeing a shift in the way that white supremacy rears its head, right? It's not just these overt acts, we think of it as, oh, it's somebody calling you the N-word or something like that, right? But that's not what white supremacy is. White supremacy is putting your privilege above the value of other human life, right? Uh, We are this entity that we're seeing as better than others, right? And in Mm -hmm. every category, you can make that effect, right? You can be a hiring manager who doesn't hire people with black-sounding names. You could be a person who gives... uh, uh, bees to people that you're a professor for because they're not the right race or skin tone, right? Um, It's things like that where you have discretion. That's where you see a lot of white supremacy, where discretion is something that, oh, I can do the right thing or I can do the wrong thing and nobody will will really be able to to say anything about it. But it's also disinvestment, right? You You have people who they're looking at their own situation and seeing how bad it is. And then the, 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 the insidious thing about race is it makes you feel like, well, at least I have something else, right? Mm-hmm. I don't have this thing, right? I'm not black, for instance. You could say, well, at least I'm white, right? It gives me something over everybody else, even though I don't have money. I don't, I, I'm poor. I live, in, I live on the streets, right? And when you have that, it makes you feel like it's not just that I'm better than, it's that they're lesser than. Mm-hmm. And if I look at people as lesser than, then I start to devalue their life. And it, it, it stems from that devaluation where you get this violence where they, these aren't people I'm shooting. These are creatures or something else, right? Um, so we also have to invest in our communities. Yeah, it's in, in, in white supremacy has, you know, since the beginning of this country, has filtered into... Mm-hmm every every facet of society and it's hard to say well okay it's wrong but it's how are we going to deconstruct how are we going to destroy and rebuild 
for a more equitable society because it seems like you know we take we can take a couple steps forward but in some instances we're taking like three steps back um how do we how do we create a more equitable society i know it's like a i know that's like a broad <laughs> broad thing to say and there's a lot of different answers to it but just from from your point of view um I think we need some truth and reconciliation, right? Um, it, it starts with acknowledging history, right? We have people that are currently saying that things didn't happen that are provable facts. We have video, we have tapes, we have written documentation of things happening, and we have people saying that those things didn't happen. Um, so we have to have truth. We all have to start from a, from a the same the same um, the same place as far as what our fa- what the facts are, mm-hmm. right? And then once we have the truth, we have to have people who are willing to change. You can't change people who aren't willing to change. If you have people saying, well, we shouldn't talk about racism because it makes my kid feel bad. Well, maybe they should. Um, Maybe they should feel bad. And that's okay. Yeah. Because we feel bad about anything that we've done wrong in our history. And we should be able to acknowledge that and talk through it. Just because you feel bad doesn't mean that you're you're guilty or that you, you should feel any type of way. It should just it should mean, why do I feel this way? Let's let's unpack that. Let's talk about it. Let's really get the cards on the table. And then maybe we can get somewhere where we can say, don't feel that way. Let's just change what's happening now. Let's change mm-hmm. the laws. Let's change whatever is derogatory to whatever race or whoever, whoever it is. And let's just change something for the better together because it, it is an effort that we have to embark on together. And there's, there's so much pushback mm-hmm. to that idea. I mean, you can look at your educator. You can look at schools across the country banning books now. Like, right. what, 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 what have we become right, right now? Yeah, it's um, it's really sad to see because we have the internet. So first off, banning books doesn't really do much. <laughs> um, I, I don't I don't know if people are aware of that that thing called you know the internet, but. Either way, it is something that when you when you see it, you you get upset because you realize that there's people that are trying to block the truth. And that's why I keep bringing it back to that idea of truth is because the more truth that people have, I've seen people that got to college and it was their first time hearing about the Tulsa massacre. Mm-hmm. There's so many people who have never even heard of that. And so once you tell them about it, you can see this light come on in their eyes where it's like, oh, there really is a problem. And it's not because, you know, they weren't raised properly or anything. Some people are just in a bubble. Mm-hmm. Some people are able to, you know, and this is what we call privilege, right? It's where you're in a, you don't necessarily have to worry about things that another group has to worry about. Exactly. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean you're better off. It just means that there are certain things you don't have to worry about. And I think, you know, education is a key to, all, to, to that as well. But if we have educators trying to block certain ideas, then education is not going to help very much. Orlando, I want to thank you again for being here and i want to thank those who are listening to buffalo what's next our daily discussion program on race education and related issues following the top shooting on may 14th coming up next dave debo will be talking about this weekend's dedication ceremonies for the african-american veterans monument with committee chairman warren galloway stay tuned PBS Kids fun and educational content is available wherever you are in Western New York, whenever you want. 
Live stream the channel at wned.org slash pbskids. And while you're there, you can play games, watch videos from your favorite shows like Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, Molly of Denali, and Alma's Way. And you'll find resources for parents and teachers. Visit wned.org slash pbskids today. Support for WBFO, your NPR station, comes from our members and from Buffalo Commons Charter School. Now enrolling K and first grade students for the 2022-23 school year. Buffalo Commons Charter School is a place where kids can engage with a rigorous project-based curriculum, develop strong relationships with diverse classmates, and discover a sense of purpose. Details and information at buffalocommonscharter.org or 716-222-0416. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And good morning. This is Dave Debo. For the balance of this hour, we're going to talk about a big event this weekend. In fact, it's something that happened here that has not happened anywhere else in the country. Buffalo unveiled and dedicated an African-American veterans monument down on the waterfront in the Naval Park. We have the only one of those in the entire country. And here to talk a little bit about it and uh, recap, I guess, this weekend's dedication ceremony... We have Warren Galloway on the line with us. Warren is chairman of the effort to try and bring the monument here. Warren, thanks very much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me this morning, Dave. Describe the monument. If I wasn't there and didn't see it or haven't come across pictures, what does it look like? The monument looks like one when you come up, you'll see 12 uh, black columns. Each column represents... Uh, one of the 12 outstanding wars that this country has been in since its exception from the Revolutionary War all the way up to the global uh, terrorism, war on terrorism. Uh, they art, the artistic designer, uh, Mr. Jonathan Casey, he designed this uh, monument, and to him, he made these columns to represent candles. And the reason why he did that, I guess, from what it says, is that during wartime, many families put candles in the windows and lit them every night until their family member came home. And even our uh, 12 black columns at night, their lights come on at the top that, uh, that light all, all night long representing candles. Then you will also, as you walk through there, you will see uh, pavers. Pavers made of brick with looks like dog tags inside. Each of the dog tags are for sale, and we uh, roughly sold over 550 pavers that have names of African-American veterans on it, their rank, their service unit, and when they served. And then you will also walk around and you will see um, tablets that are developed that for each two columns, there were comments about brief history of what African-Americans did in that war. Like the first two will be the Revolutionary War, War of 1812, 
and it goes on. And then also you will see on these uh, pamphlets or columns, you will see a QR code that you can use your smartphone device to basically hit that QR code, and you'll get about 30 seconds of more information that you would read, maybe a little quick video or something. So this monument is not only to honor African-American vets, but it's also to educate the community and everybody on just what type of input and impact that African-Americans had in fighting for this country. I understand that the columns, too, are spaced such that they are sort of a timeline. Uh, The distance between each war corresponds to the amount of time between each war. So the space as you walk around, the space that you're walking in, is the relative peacetime between wars. Yes. Wow. Talk about the pavers. These are individual dog tags, and I understand during the ceremony this weekend, it was pretty poignant. People were actually bending down and, and... Someone was even kissing one of the stones? You know, Dave, I, you know, it really hit me. After we uh, unrevealed it, you know, we pulled the the big tarp off of it, and families and people were walking around looking at trying to find their paver that they paid for. And I guess something hit people, you know, that when they actually seen their loved one, their father, uncle, brother, or sister, when they actually seen their name on concrete as a permanent uh, memorial to their family member, a lot of the people reacted that I didn't expect myself. There was tears. There was joy. I mean, yeah, you know, a lot of veterans, especially World War II, and what's it, they never really talked about being in the service. I know my father never really talked about it at all. Mm-hmm. But to actually see a name of a family member, people were really emotionally affected by it. And I think that there's just it hit me when I watched people's reaction. This is the first and only right now. Maybe there are others that are planned, but the first African-American veterans monument memorial in the entire nation. Yeah. Why? What we why it is. Yeah, there are many cities that might have uh, statues of African-Americans honor you in World War One or Vietnam or whatever. But there's no other monument in the country that we research that's a monument that acknowledges African-Americans in all 12 conflicts. That's the difference, that this monument is just not for honoring Vietnam African-Americans or World War One wreck or Koreans. A war veterans. This is people. Who, this monument honors every African American veteran from the Revolutionary War to now. Why here? One spot. Why here? Did just someone here have the idea, and other places didn't? Yeah, I guess uh, this idea came from the uh, a women's civics group, Erie County chapter of Lynx. Uh, in 2014, they basically. Uh, announced and they showed and they put on display at the Franklin Merriweather Library that for for a year or so they were doing research and they developed these columns or paper strolls of all the names of all the African American veterans who died, you know, who, you know, agently died, not just died in the war, but just died. And when they, when they, um, when they basically 
open it up to the people to see it, they approached the Semi Woman Peoples trying to find a spot where they could basically store these. And at the same time, the neighbor park told them they didn't have any space. But then uh, Semi Woman Peoples, Semi Woman Peoples commissioned a committee to look at, at this issue and to help. And then we realized that there's no monument in Buffalo to honor African-American veterans. You know, you go out to the Naval Park now, you'll see a monument honoring Hispanic soldiers, Polish soldiers, Irish soldiers, Afghanistan war veterans, but there was nothing down there. And the committee basically started working and we wanted, then we decided that we want to build some type of monument. We went down to the Naval Park and got some land initiated. Then we met and met you know, for six years, and then we came up with, uh, we asked for proposals for designs, and, and we stayed locally, and we had six artists design, you know, submit designs, and this is the one the committee recommend, uh, decided on because it, it was the one that helped share our story the best. You mentioned that it took six, ye six years. Uh, I know there were some delays. I know that you planned on having it a little earlier, but as a result of the delay now, this opening this past weekend occurs in the same year as the Tops shooting. Does that make it in any way more significant? Do you find more people are talking about racial issues because of that? Oh, yeah. And and is yeah. there, con I don't want to make a connection if it's not there, but are these two kind of connected if, if for no other reason than the timeline? Probably just a timeline, but I think at the same time it, it helped because a lot of what's going on in the community with the sense of tops uh, massacre is that a lot of us are starting to look at our history we're starting to look at how we got to where we are and this monument we feel feeds into that uh, that mode that you know we have a lot of history uh, we have a lot of stuff that this community and our african americans then also non-African Americans need to be proud of. And it just fell in line with it. Uh, it wasn't planned on it, you know, because our original plan was that hopefully we could have raised the money, you know, two years ago or so, but then with COVID delayed everything, you know, and a lot of portions of our funding came from the state. And when Governor Cuomo froze all grants and everything, that just put us way back. Warren Galloway is here. He's the chairman of the African American Veterans Monument, unveiled this weekend on Buffalo's waterfront. Warren, you and I have talked a little bit about this before, and I know for you the stories are important. If I go up to the monument, use my device, and, and click on the QR code, what am I going to learn? What special story is out there that uh, perhaps resonates most for you? Oh, well, you, you're going to learn, like... The first person killed in the American Revolutionary War was the African American. You're going to learn that in the World War, I mean, in the War of 1812, a lot of the war was fought in the Great Lakes. You're going to learn that a quarter of the Navy sailors in the Great Lakes Wars were African Americans. Uh, you're going to learn that in the World War One, the group called the Harlem Hellfighters, that were American soldiers 
trained in America to fight the Germans, but because of Amer- uh, the American segregation policies that black soldiers couldn't fight with white soldiers, they were assigned to the French government, but yet still fought for the same war. You're going to learn that in spite of all the promises that African Americans received, that if you uh, support us, like the Union soldiers in the Civil War or the American or George Washington soldiers in the Revolutionary War, that you would be free. But in spite of all these you know, promises and the racism that whenever the call of duty or the call for soldiers came out from any war, African Americans responded. So they, on one hand, they fought the, the, the enemy of America, but then when they came home, they had to fight the enemy of racism. So many of our soldiers had to fight two wars. Then you're going to hear about a woman's group called the Six Triple H in World War II, an all-black female battalion of mail handlers who were sent to England to clean up a warehouse that had millions of letters for American soldiers that were just stored in the warehouse, and these soldiers in Europe couldn't get them. But these group of women that they thought would take about a year to to resolve the issues, that they cleaned up the old mail system in in a few months. You're gonna learn. Of course, you learn about the Tuskegee Airmen, but you're gonna learn about the Red Ball Express, a group of black truck drivers who just rode rode through the the enemy territory in Europe to make sure the supplies got to the necessary soldiers. Uh, you're going to learn that in the Korean War, when it started, there was 100,000 African-Americans in the military. And when the Korean conflict truce hit, there was over 400,000. So you're going to read a lot of other history that just doesn't, you never heard about, but that blacks had a significant impact into the survival and the, and the well-being. You're going to hear about in the Civil War that the North was, was losing the war until Lincoln decided to authorize the Northern soldiers to, to draft and to put uh, African-Americans uh, to battle, which helped change the course of the war. So information like that that you might not have never read about, but these are true facts. I've heard of a little bit of it, the uh, 6888, the women's uh, unit. Yeah. Um, they just recently had a, a Buffalo veteran, Indiana Hunt Martin, uh, honored with a post office locally in her name. She was yeah. a member of that 6888. Uh, the Harlem Hellcats, though, or Hellfighters, yeah. is one that I had never heard of before until I started chatting with you. Um, yeah. n- not only did they have to fight with the French, but they um, trained in Spartanburg, North Carolina, and were an all-black unit in the Jim Crow South. Yeah. And, and that they received more medals from the French government than any other group of military people. But because of the segregation laws, here you are, you're American citizens, Dave. You're fighting the same enemy as the country, the Germans. But because of our segregation laws, you couldn't even fight with your fellow Americans. You had to fight with another foreign country. You know, and, and you try, now that you look at it, you're saying, was it really that bad? You know, the, the, the troops weren't segregated until 1946 when uh, President Truman issued an executive order. And this is kind of what you meant when you said 
not only did they have to fight overseas, but they came back and they ended up fighting racism here. Yes. Were you a veteran? Did you face some of that? Uh, when I came back from the war, the only uh, backlash I felt because I was a Vietnam veteran who fought in Vietnam is that, you know, Vietnam returnees, we were considered murderers because, you know, there's so much anti-public sentiments about the war in Vietnam. And a lot of that negative feeling was put on the, to the soldiers that when came back, we had nothing to do with nothing. And, like, we didn't get a ticker tape parade when we came back from now. So a lot of us African-American soldiers with this monument, this, this is our version of our ticker tape parade. You talk about the history and the lessons and the fact that people need to see these lessons. Uh, this, this is one of those which of your children do you like better sort of questions. Uh, is, is it important to teach those kind of lessons to black Americans, especially to youth, so they have role models? Or is it more important for the public at large to realize, hey, these are some untold stories that people don't know? It's both. I knew you, you would say to... that, but yeah, that, that's the way I set the question up. No, because you got to understand, even the committee, when we were trying to come up with a design, and then when we started asking our own self questions, do we as a committee, you know, how many in our own community realize that blacks have participated in every war that this country has been in? And you ask a lot of people, you might, they might even say no, they didn't realize, you know, Revolutionary War, we were slaves, but we were promised that if you support us, you'll be free. It never happened. All these problems, and I think it also educates the community in general that African Americans has been around from the inception of this community, I mean, of this country, and to be treated the way we are is, you know, it's really tough. So that's why we say this is not only to honor African-American vets, but it's also to educate the community. I've seen a lot of studies, some interviews, some stories from the Associated Press that says the military still has a little bit of a problem with treating whites and blacks the same. Do you agree? Yes. Yes. Um, our keynote speaker was General... Uh, Mitko, he's a four-star general from D.C., and one of his tasks is to try to help with the diversity issues with the Army. And, you know, and that's one of the things that the Army realizes, all the military realizes, that there's still a problem of, you know, of interpretation and unequal treatment. You know, for years we had to fight for promotions and opportunities, and yet still... And our keynote speaker for unveiling was a black four-star general. And that's big, you know. When you can get a four-star general to come into your area to speak about something, you know, you hit big time. Warren, I'm, I'm going to ask you, uh, I think you're on a cell. If you could just step one step to the left or the right, you're breaking up a little bit. I want you to repeat what you just said about getting a four-star general to come on in. Yeah, no, we were able to. Oh, you're much clearer now. Thanks for that. Okay. We were, we were able to get a four-star general to be our keynote speaker, and at this time, a black four-star general. And years ago, you would never have even understood the four-star general being representative. And he was very good. He talked about the diversity. I mean, he went through a lot of the same history that I 
that I talked about, but he went into detail even when he served in Afghanistan with his troops. We have about 10 seconds left as we close here. Tell people where exactly this monument is. Okay, this monument is at the Buffalo Erie County Naval Park, uh, right towards the end where the big flagpole is, the Rotary uh, Club flagpole right near the Vietnam Memorial. All right, Warren, that is all we have time for. Thanks so much for joining us. Warren Galloway, chairman of the African-American Veterans Monument Committee. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLL Olean, WUBJ Jamestown.